Welcome to Deep Matter. In this episode, Sean and I are talking about some of the differences in the way we approach creative projects, specifically the organization of creativity. We also talk about a recent email from Stephen Pressfield, who suggests that the fear of success has nothing to do with success itself, but instead it's all about acceptance. Here we go. So now I'm recording, and you're recording, and everybody's recording. <laughs> yeah, there's so much recording going on. It's there is. Insane. You know, and it's it's funny. Okay, so uh, uh, first time using the new Tascam Mixcast 4, Sean and I have been kind of fiddling with settings. There, I'm sure the Roadcaster is the same way. There are just so many things that you get to tweak and control on these, on these desks that... Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit of fiddling to get it right with your particular setting. Certainly, you can just plug it in, hit the big red record button, and get sound. But the setup that we use, we're using Skype to connect. And then uh, I'm also using Audio Hijack to record Skype and record me. Sean's recording him on the Rodecaster, and I'm also recording on the Mixcast just because I'm still in sort of hardware test mode and trying to get all of these things to speak to one another. And, you know, we had a little thing with, with bleed uh, a few minutes ago where Sean was bleeding onto my channel and I thought it was bleed from the headphones bleeding into my mic. What? Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't your fault. Uh, it was a matter of kind of troubleshooting, well, what could it be and listen back to it? And what could this be and listen back to it? And just sort of eliminating um, potential hiccups. But anyway, so thank you for, for being willing to, thank you for being my guinea pig, Sean. Anytime, man. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you feed me and keep my sawdust fresh, I'm happy. (laughs) A new bottle of water and keep your little wheel clean. Oh, my wheel. <laughs> you know, I love my wheel. I do. I do. We're all, we're all on that wheel. It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, it does. <laughs> we're philosophical very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I went up to the library yesterday. We, we have such a terrific local library. And uh, it's, it's got a, a really fantastic bookstore that I find multiple titles every time I go there. And they're just a couple dollars. You know, I mean, it's... It's nice to support the library, but I almost feel guilty because sometimes you're buying a book for a dollar or two dollars. And it's like, well, how much can that possibly help? But it does help, I guess. Mm. And uh, anyway, so I picked up three Studs Turkle books. And I think they have two more that I think I'm going to go back and get today because I've been really getting into to him even more. And, and I haven't read a lot of things by him. I've only really read Working and I've listened to a bunch of his stuff online, but I'd like to, to jump back into that. Um, and then I also got, uh, man in the high castle, Philip K. Dick, mm. uh, which I, I haven't ever read it. I watched the series with Rufus Sewell. I love Rufus Sewell. He's such a great actor. He's great. Yeah. And then, uh, I got a couple other ones that I can't remember, but anyway, I think I bought eight books yesterday and it was a grand total of a, a whopping $15 for eight no books. Way. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Do you want to, do you want to tell the uninitiated who Studs Turkle is? Because I'm not sure everyone would know. Yeah, Studs Turkle was uh, a, a broadcaster and uh, an oral historian. The way I came to know him was through a project he did called Working, which um, he interviewed people over decades, mm. talking to them about their work, what they loved about it, what they didn't love about it, what they brought to it, what they got from it. And it was just this, this really wonderful portrayal of what working life is like in America. And he was all over the board. He talked to waitresses, he talked to doctors, he talked to, you know, tradespeople, blue collar, white collar, all of the above. And it's just this wonderful collection of conversations. And he had such a great way about him. He was inquisitive, he was curious, he was knowledgeable. And uh, I just, I, I love what he brought to the table. It was so interesting to me. And um, I've kind of been getting more into the idea of the types of conversations that he had over the years. And 
it's kind of inspired, well, not kind of, it has inspired me to want to talk to um, blue collar workers in America, kind of as a tie to my own family history. And I've talked about that a little bit, but that's mm. really where the inspiration came, was, was from Stud Circle. And uh, the, are the books about the interviews? A couple of them are, uh, you know, hold on, let me grab them. Ugh. <laughs> Whoops. That, that's, that sounded heavy. <laughs> Okay, so one is called P.S., Stud Circle P.S., Further Thoughts from a Lifetime of Listening. Mm. And uh, the back of the book, while doing research for his memoir, Touch and Go, Stud Circle uncovered pages upon pages of his favorite writings, transcripts, interviews, short essays, and other jewels, many of which have never been published. P.S. brings together these significant and deeply enjoyable writings for the first time and reflects Stud's wide-ranging interests and travels, as well as his abiding connection to his hometown, Chicago. So these are some of the outtakes and transcripts. He talks about uh, a project or an interview that he did with James Baldwin. That's one of his more famous. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, so I got that one. I got uh, Studs Terkel, Hard Times, an Oral History of the Great Depression, mm -hmm. which I think is going to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then uh, American Dreams Lost and Found, Studs Terkel, which is just kind of continuing you know, there, there's, a, there's a common thread, there's a common kind of ethos that runs through all of his conversations. And I, th this looks to be a continuation um, or, or a, a, a companion, I guess, to the stuff that he did for working. Mm. Oh, that's cool. And it's just great conversation. I love great conversation. You know that. Yeah, and you love listening. I mean, that's, uh, by the sounds of it, that's what made him great, was he was naturally curious and like listening to people's stories and just knew how to ask them the next little question to pop the jar open, let them go. I think so. Yeah. And, and in some of them, I mean, you can certainly look for Stud Circle online. There's a, a terrific archive of, of his work, but one of the kind of devices that he would use, he would ask his subject to describe the surroundings. Because remember, this wasn't over the internet. This wasn't remote. This wasn't even over the phone. He was, he was dragging his reel-to-reel -reel recorder around to record in situ. And, and he would have his subjects describe their environment, whether it's their home or their place of business or whatever it was. So we get a sense as a listener of where we're at. We get a sense of uh, looking around the room, what may have been important to the people that he's talking to, what kind of objects they surround themselves with, what, what, what their surroundings look and feel like to the best that we can with audio. But often it was really effective in kind of setting the stage for um, what was to come next in the conversation. That's a lovely form of audio, isn't it? Like where it's something we almost don't have very much anymore. I mean, you used to have the old radio plays and those kind of things, which sort of did really good, a really good job of sort of setting the scene and putting you in a place and just letting you kind of get lost. But we, we now kind of podcasts are mostly straight ahead, slightly detached in terms of time and place interviews. Yeah. Um, which don't sort of put you in the setting as much, or we have video, but that kind of, there's something really romantic, I think about that, that, that sort of form of audio that relies on description. You have to describe in the moment, like I, I can't show it to you because of the medium I'm choosing, but I'm going to describe it to you. So the words that you're choosing help us describe a place, but also see it through your eyes, not through maybe what could be a slightly more objective camera lens. There's something cool about that. I, I like it for, I mean, the only times I ever listen to audiobooks now are either if I'm doing a lot of photo editing, because I find I can sort of take that stuff in while I'm processing with the visual side of my brain, or just before I go to sleep. Um, I've got a little, uh, one of those little Sonos speakers that sit on my bedside table, and I just play audiobooks through my phone. And I love, I love that more than TV, honestly, or more than watching a movie in bed. I like sort of being able to close my eyes turn the lights off and then just be read to um, and be put in a, in a place. Mm. And I, I, I'd, I'd love to hear more. Well, and I know this is on the cards for you as well. I'd love to see you do this, take us, take us places with you and have you talk to people, but also, I mean, with, I think it's a nice idea getting them to describe it, but even you describing it, putting us in the place, you know, I'm standing on the corner of this street and that street, and there's a cafe opposite, and a lot of cabs are driving past. It's a hot day. It's very humid. It's, you know, that kind of 
putting us in a place rather than it always being in a in a slightly clinical studio, which is so many of the interviews now. Right. That's really right. cool. I, I love cool it. Idea. I love it. Do you, do you, will you indulge me? Do you want to try it? Yeah. Our, each of our respective environments describe kind of where each of us are at at the moment. Oh, God. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's pretty boring, right? but let's, let's do it. I'm in the middle of the North York Moors, which is a, a beautiful corner of um, the United Kingdom, probably about 30 minutes from the coast, just up the hill from me. Uh, is the North York Moors National Park. So it's, uh, you know, traditional moorland. It's sort of low, scrubby grassland. But as you drop down the hill into the into the little town where I live, you sort of, you go through sort of more wooded, forested hills. And I am in, uh, at the moment, I'm sitting in a, in a house, uh, which is my home. I'm on this, the first floor, uh, one of the bedrooms upstairs I've turned into an office, and I'm sitting at a, an L-shaped desk, uh, which is, <laughs> I was trying to go for like an industrial look, but um, they're slightly cheap uh, desks bought off Amazon, but I stuck them in an L shape. Um, I don't have lights on in the room except for a little desk lamp. It's the sun has just dropped, so it is nighttime outside, and I'm just being lit by a little desk lamp and two monitors, which I've got set up. Uh, and then I've got, what else have I got? I've got a few pictures on the wall. Um, I have one of my images, two by a friend of mine, uh, you'd know her on Instagram as one chapter. Her name is Mavis. Um, and I've got a video light in the corner and I've got racking behind me, which has a bunch of lighting and camera gear on it. And uh, otherwise it's a pretty minimalist, simple room. Um, and that's where I'm sitting right now talking to you. I love how you started wide and gave us, gave us a description of, of, the landscape, the topography, and then moved closer and closer to the center of the circle of where you're at. I love that. Cool. Yeah, that's very you're cool. saying I nailed it. That's, oh, that's yeah, absolutely. Thing about, about, about making your interview subject do it is I would imagine different people would describe where they're at in different ways or pick up on different stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what probably, because I thought when I heard, oh, you know, he'd first of all start with a description he'd do the describing so there was some consistency with that but the fact that he made them do it is quite interesting because it's yeah be very different it's gonna be more detailed with some less with others some will focus wide some will focus very narrow well and you you brought you brought up a, a particular photo on the wall whereas if i were describing the room object objectively or or actually i guess i i couldn't really do it objectively because i'm going to be drawn to certain things i might i might mention one of the keyboards that happened to be there, or I might mention mm -hmm. a particular camera that caught my eye that might be sitting on, mm -hmm. on a bench. So it's interesting that having, having the guests do it, we get just, just through their own observation and, and their own subjective observation, we get a sense of what's important to them because it's, it's yeah. th the object that they feel is worth mentioning yeah, or the details that are worth mentioning. Which is why I think it's clever to make them do it, because I suppose they'll let you into what they see as important in their world. It's quite cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Hit us. Okay. I'm in uh, Maryland, and if you were to walk about a mile south from, from my house, there's a metro station, and if you got on the red line, within about 20 minutes, you could be at the Capitol building in uh, D.C. And our street is... Not unlike a lot of other post-war neighborhoods, mid-century kind of rambler brick homes, uh, modest homes. They're not big by any means. This house was built in 1956. It was actually the first house built on this street in 1956, and it was built by the previous owner that we bought it from. And I am in one of the bedrooms that the wife in this husband and wife duo that built the home she used as her paint studio she was a painter oh. and he was uh he was a, a woodworker uh he, he was an engineer he worked at the um it wasn't naval intelligence you know what it was it was the national weather service mm. he was in the navy and then he became an engineer for the national weather service but he built all of our built-in cabinets that surround the the fireplace he built all of our cabinets that are in the the kitchen cabinets and uh and this is where his wife would paint and it's got this lovely south-facing 
window that when the curtains are open just floods the room with light. Um, and there are nice hardwood floors here and there are still stains from where paint dropped over the years on the floor while she was painting, which I love. I'm at a black, very simple, clean, you know, well, the desk is not clean, but the lines of the desk are clean. It's just a black, uh, I think Linmon is the name of the desk from Ikea, which they've just recently discontinued, I learned. But the desktop itself is an absolute mess. It, there are post-it notes everywhere that I often can't find what I'm looking for because there are so many. They're stuck around the monitor. They're stuck to the desktop. They're stuck to the sides of speakers. Ideas, thoughts, questions, things that I should remember but can't because I can't find the post-it note that I wrote it on. <laughs> Just <laughs> typical. Um, I have two little ceramic containers for pens and pencils. One, one reads write and the other one reads create. I like it. Write is filled with pens. Create is filled with pencils. And I don't really even remember now whether that was intentional or whether that just happened to be the way it shakes out. Behind me, there are stacks and stacks of books because I've, I've started moving things into the new studio downstairs. So I've, I've had to take all of the books out of the bookshelves and cases and move those shelves and cases downstairs. So now I'm, I look like a shut-in. I've got just <laughs> stacks of, <laughs> of photo books and art books uh, behind me. And uh, a couple of my own paintings are hanging on the walls. And there's a large acoustic panel. It's uh, one, two, three, four, five feet by four feet that's on the wall in front of me. And there's another one that's two feet by three feet to the wall to my left. And uh, I'm lit by this little vintage metal desk lamp that's on like a, you know, it's almost like an old drafting lamp. It's got a, a, an LED bulb in it that's set to warm white. Gosh, you and I are really different. <laughs> We've got, like, your your space is str- so much cleaner. I, my, your clutter I have, is stressing me out. Like, oh, it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> I mean, because I'm, I, I'm so minimal. Like at the moment, there is nothing on my desk. There's, there's two monitors, two, two uh, audio monitors, two screens, uh, a mouse, a keyboard, and a tablet. That's, that's it. There isn't anything else on the, the desk. Um, oh and on gosh. the desk to my left is a is a um, complete control like Native Instruments uh, MIDI keyboard and my Rodecaster and an and an iPad and two rolls of film that I need to send off to get developed. That's that's everything that's on both desks, and I can't Dude. I can't do any more clutter than that. And and I I don't even I don't have drawers on either desk either. I've got shelves that just sit sort of underneath the desk. Mm-hmm. And if too much stuff gets on those shelves, I have to pack it into plastic boxes and stick them <laughs> on a shelf in the other room because it stresses me that there's too much stuff there. Yeah. Because, and I can't have a drawer because if the drawer closes, that will get cluttered and that'll stress me out. So I'm so minimal. Like everything has to be clean, uncluttered, and I have to have space around me. Oh, this would drive you bananas. Yeah, I, yeah. I can, I can see like patches it. of the desktop through the stuff that's stacked on the desk. Gosh, it's like it's like a picture of our personalities. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's just, I mean, hard drives. Uh, I'm looking around, er, erasers. There are one, two, three, four, five erasers. Um, cables in rat's nests all over, connecting USB hubs to the mixer, to the speakers, to the monitor, to my mini, to external hard drives. There are one, two, three external hard drives. Oof. <laughs> Bless your heart, man. I, I, <laughs> are you getting are you getting hives right now? Just thinking I about literally, it. I'm gonna have to take a Xanax or something. <laughs> 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 Yeah, no, well, I can't. It, it, I find like it, it clutters my thinking. I have to do a clean before I start a project. Like even before I start a video, I, I, before I sit down to write a script, I, I, I clean the space. Yeah. I don't know why it helps. It just helps me sort of get in the space. I'm like, there's nothing sitting out that needs my attention. So I can yeah. just focus on this one thing is the way I think I think about it. Um, I do that in the studio. In my paint studio, I, I do that. Yes. Everything, when, when I finish... I mean, during the course of a, of a, a series of paintings, it's, it looks like a bomb went off. There's just stuff everywhere. <laughs> but that all gets reset for the next project. I, I right. wrap the desk. I, I wrap my work table with new brown paper, craft paper. 
Mm -hmm. All of the paints are back in the cabinets. Everything is up off the floor. Everything is up off the desk. And I start fresh. But by the end of it, it, well, it looks like my desk. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I will spare you another description. Of. Oh, man, alive. So your desk always looks like your desk, though. Always. Is that like your process, do you think? Does that just work for you? Or, or is it something you, <sighs> it's just something you w would like to do it differently, but it always ends up that way? Are you I happy with it? Are you comfortable with it? <laughs> you can't I'm stop asking. Because <laughs> I'm not. I don't know how you're doing it. <laughs> you're anxious on my behalf. I really am. <laughs> um, I, I think, yeah, I think the chaos, the chaos of ideas, this is just the way it ends up. I, I try to streamline things. I try to... You know, I have the best of intentions. I, I will go through at, at periods throughout the year and, and, you know, clean it all off and start again. But it will inevitably get back to this level of just detritus everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've talked to a few people about this recently, but we we're saying like that the, the world is kind of divided into two groups of people. It's those who, who can only work at the last minute and do their homework at the last minute. And those right. who need to have their homework done two weeks before so they're not stressed out and they've got time to think about and change stuff. Like I was the homework two weeks before it needed to be brought in. And I'm guessing you were less of that. I, see, yeah, I was. I would, I would think about things for a long time. I thought about them not only for a long time, but often in those periods. But when I was in college, for example, I never wrote a rough draft of a paper. The way I wrote it was the way it came out or the way it came out was the way it turned, got turned in. And, right. uh, and this is, this is not to sound like uh, I'm not tooting my own horn or anything. And I, I hope this doesn't come out like this, but I never got below a 97 on a paper. Right. Because I spent such an extraordinary amount of time thinking about it and going through it in my head that by the time I sat down to, to write, I knew what I wanted to say and I knew how I wanted to say it. And it worked out in that. I, I don't know that I could pull that off again. Maybe that was a, a moment in time, but for that window of time, that's how I did it. And that's how it worked out. I don't know that. I don't think I'm a good writer. I, th I think I have bursts of, of lucidity and, and coherence, but I, I don't, like so many other things in my life that you and I have talked about, I don't think it's, it's sustained very well. And maybe, maybe the clutter contributes to that because there are always so many ideas. There are always so many things that I can tackle. I went down a rabbit hole last night and did drawings for a modular fountain pen <laughs> that I know I'm never going to build, <laughs> but I caps, you know, uh, grips, barrel designs, uh, even down to what type of, of sort of knurling and engraving would be available on the multiple different kinds of grips you can order. Why? Why do I do these things? I don't know. I just had this idea and I had to see it through to, to a, I don't know, to, to, to a level of completion that allowed me to let go of it and move on to something else. Right. You kind of have to put something down to get it out of your head. Yes. So that you can move on to something else, but it doesn't yes. necessarily have to be complete. It just has to be out. It just has to be out. And, and it was funny because I think I've, I really struggled with the idea of journaling for a long time. And, and to those people who can journal and who can write things down and get them out of their heads, I, massive respect. My hat is off to you. One of my favorite people who, who does that is Christopher Matheson. He has mm -hmm. got meticulous journals about things he thinks about, art projects, things that he's read, things that he's watched, notes about things that he's seen. And I often wonder why I don't do more of that because when I do it and I have, you know, like the drawings for this pen are not in a notebook of which I have dozens of blank notebooks. They're on, I think they're on the back of a bill or they're on like the, the back of an envelope that a bill came in or they're on some random piece of paper, oh, you know, yeah, random scraps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so, so things get lost because 
a lot of times the the thing that I did is on the back of something that either came in the mail or some other thing. And I look at the front of it and I go, well, I don't need that. And I throw it away because I don't think to turn it over and go, there's got to be something important on the back of that because that's where I do all my important things on the back of other things. There, there's no recognition whatsoever like that. It just <laughs> gets completely lost in the mix. You see now, p- part of me really loves that you do that. And part of me wants to <laughs> smash my brains out against the wall because you do that because I, I love i love that you do you've got this a very immediate thing like where you something will pop into your brain by the sound of it and you have to act on it in that moment yes um but then kind of when you've done that you're you've moved on yes and and that's that's really interesting to me because i can't do that i i, I think i work quite differently in that if, if something pops into my head i'll jot down a note about that but that's not the work. I, I'm going to think about it for a while, almost like you do assignments. But then I'm going to I'm going to set a time to to complete that, and that has to get done then. But the note isn't the thing. And I, I hope I'm not betraying your trust. Like, and feel free not to use it. Obviously, no. But, go ahead. But, but you and I often have conversations where you'll have what I think is a brilliant idea, and then we won't talk about it for a little bit. And then you'll come back to me three months later. You did it this week. And you say, hey, what about this? And I'm like, we've already had this conversation. You absolutely should do that. And now I know it's on a post-it note somewhere on that crazy desk. <laughs> and you had this brilliant idea. And it's it. you got it out. So that was done. Job done. You can move on to your other I thing. I can move I'm on like, to the next thing. No, I want to see that thing in the world. It's not done at all. You haven't even started. Like, do the thing because I want to see it. Are you talking <laughs> about the, the zine? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You I completely forgot about it. Completely forgot about it. But but and, that, and Sean was like, scene, "You you know we've talked about this before, right?" But not <laughs> just you and I. You'd also talk to friends of ours who were doing the same thing, and you'd you'd actually researched it a little bit. But then yeah. something else happened, and you moved on. And then I moved you came on back to it as if it was brand new. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's it's on the post-it somewhere on the desk. Like, yeah. Make it happen. Well, and you, do you know where the post-it is? I'll tell you exactly Please. where the post-it is because yeah. I found it last night. It's, it's stuck to, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, I'm going to hate this already, don't you? <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. It's stuck to the, uh, the envelope that all the print material came from, from the printer, from the printer that you use, that you, that, that, that you told me about. Yeah. I wrote it down, but in doing completely separate research, I arrived at that printer told you about it and you went you know that's who i told you about months ago right but the problem with that is <laughs> if you, if i could be so bold is there is no way <laughs> oh gosh, is there is no way that there aren't 50 brilliant ideas being lost under post-it somewhere yeah right yeah, maybe oh i don't know about brilliant but, but there, there are, are 50 ideas there are, there are. And like, I don't know, like, I mean, again, like you can't, you can't work in ways you can't work. And, and you do like, I think, I think there's, there are some things you can do, like in terms of like personalities, like I think, I think, my, I don't think my way of doing things is the right way. Because, mm-hmm. because the, the danger in the way I do stuff, to be honest, is that I'm too tightly controlled with stuff. So right. I, I think I have less ideas than you do. Because if I have a little idea that I can't set a date to finish it, I abandon it. Mm. And I don't, even, I don't even write it down. I let it go. And that's, that's controlling things too tightly. And I'm choking creativity out of stuff by being too much of a control freak. So I'm not suggesting the way I do stuff is good. But I reckon people like you and people like me can learn from each other in that adopting some of my self-discipline might help you get stuff done and adopting some of your... Uh, chaos <laughs> what would you use it's a it's a it's a greater openness it's a greater sort of creativity and not having to hold things as tightly and and allowing yourself to run off on thoughts without guaranteeing that there's a final result being less of a perfectionist in a way yes. would, would would help me create more things and i've got that to learn from you and I don't think it's about me becoming more your personality type or vice versa. It's just about going, how can I balance out some of my strengths and weaknesses by learning from somebody else who does things very differently? Well, and to, to be fair, I think as, as I, th- this whole move down to the studio, there's been this, this unintended sort of catharsis or, or, or 
reaching of a critical mass in that I'm uncovering all of this stuff because I'm, I'm moving things that haven't been moved in five years since I moved in here and finding more post-it notes, <laughs> finding more post-it notes, more, more just like I will, because I, I have, to, as you pointed out, I, I have to get it out of my head when I have to get it out of my head. So I will grab whatever piece of paper happens to be handy and I'll start scribbling and that piece of paper will inevitably end up on a stack of similarly scribbled papers, sometimes to be found, sometimes to be put in a box, sometimes to be lost to time, you know? And I think what's happened this week, and I, well, I know it has because I've, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at, at one of the products of that, is uh, I need to start really, not just saying I'm going to do it, but I need to start keeping journals. And what I've decided to do is keep two different kinds of journals. Um, I've, I've got, in fact, the, the, the second order is coming hopefully today. Uh, I'll keep a set of writing journals for my morning pages. Mm -hmm. And then I've got um, this journal by a company called Zequenz. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's Z-E-Q-U-E-N-Z. And it's, it's a Zequenz Classic 360. And I learned about these from Austin Kleon, who uses them as his kind of daily driver journal. And they are 400 pages. They've got this sort of plastic kind of wraparound binding. If you if, look them up on Amazon, if, you, if you're curious about them, it's the Zequenz Classic 360. They've got this, they're completely foldable. So there's no, I don't know, they're, they're, they just have a very unique kind of binding system on them. But this will be my idea journal. This will be, um, this will be with me all the time. It's a good size. One of the things that I don't like about, for example, field notes is they're just too small. They're too small to really draw or even write anything beyond quick little notes, lists, things like that, in my opinion. A lot of people use them in different ways and they love them. But for me, it's too small. Whereas this sequins, it's like five by seven, five by eight, maybe it's a good size. And I think in light of finding so many of these ideas and so many of these little notes, um, on, you know, hundreds of disparate pieces of paper, I think I've kind of come to the conclusion that you said a few minutes ago, where how many of these things am I not able to find that could be that one idea that I should act on that, I, that, that should go beyond just a napkin sketch or the sketch on the back of, you know, the gas bill envelope or something. You know what I mean? Oh gosh, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and a lot of these things that, that are, it's, it's funny. I got it. And this was the other thing I wanted to talk to you about. I, I got an email. Wait, how are we doing on time? Let me look, let me look here. Oh yeah, we're good. All right. Um, I got an email today. I subscribe to uh, Stephen Pressfield's Writing Wednesdays. And if, if you don't subscribe to it and you're, you're trying to uh, overcome, you know, some of the existential obstacles that we talk about, it's not really just towards writing. It's not geared just towards writing, despite the fact that it's called Writing Wednesdays. And today's uh, entry is called Fear of Success Anonymous. And may, may I read just this, this little... Please. In intro thing. He writes, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's absolutely true. I once joined Fear of Success Anonymous, aka FOSA, F-O-S-A. This was in Los Angeles. Almost all the group members were actors or screenwriters. The group got so popular it had to disband. I remember driving home from the final meeting thinking, I've got to solve this issue on my own. Fear of success by definition can never succeed. What keeps you and me from finishing a book, a startup, a screenplay? He's, he writes, I think it's tribal. It's not our fault. It's in our DNA. Consider the caveman, the foot soldier of the primitive hunting band. This applies to the cavewoman too. Remember, the tribal era constitutes 99.99% of our evolutionary time as human beings. In the tribe, the greatest terror was expulsion. Getting kicked out of the cave was a death sentence. What crime could get us expelled from the tribe? Standing out, being different. This makes sense, right? In a world of fearsome predators, the tribe has to stick together. It can't afford some crazy guy or gal who'd rather paint cave walls than stand all night guard against saber-toothed tigers. 
And it goes on just to talk about how, how the, the fear of success to him and, and in, this, in this sort of thought experiment that he's going down is really rooted in the fear of standing out and not being part of that tribe anymore, not being seen as part of that tribe anymore. Because now, you know, you're George Clooney getting paid $20 million a movie instead of, you know, uh, uh, an equity actor making scale working at, uh, you know, a, a theater in the Valley. It's funny, I did have this thought the other day, and I can't remember what interview I was watching, but it was, somebody, it was some celebrity, it was some actor, um, and, and the interviewer was, I wish I could remember who it was, was saying something about, oh, you know, what is it like to reach your level and not have to look for work anymore and all the rest of it? And their answer was lonely. Um, and hmm. saying that what you forget is that, you know, you, you think that I'm super popular, but, and, and, and I am, if I walk down the street, people know who I am, but I get less meaningful relationships because people perceive me as a threat now. And yeah. they don't, and or or they're jealous of the fact that I've that I've made money, and it is harder to have those those meaningful relationships. And if you do think about it, you think, when is the time in your life where you do have the most people around you, and you have the most community? And I think back to times where I was uh, waiting tables at a restaurant, yeah, and how all 20, 30 of us who worked at that restaurant knew each other, knew each other's lives, were friends. We hung out outside of work because we were all struggling together. But the minute one left and and got any kind of success for themselves they're out of the group and they're on their own and and they don't necessarily move on to find a new community because everyone goes well they're making money now so they'll be fine they'll be on their own so right. maybe there is that yeah but that kind of makes sense there's this fear of like if i do succeed maybe i'm on my own then or maybe i i maybe i lose something in gaining something I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it. I hadn't put the two together but that makes a lot it's of sense. interesting I right thought yeah i always thought the fear of success was a fear of not being able to have it on your own terms. So, you know, that, that you, you, your life gets out of control or, or, or something like, um, if, if, if I start to get success, will it be the, the way that I want it or risking trying to get successful? If, if I, if I, if I can't get it, maybe I'm putting myself out there and, and that will hurt. Maybe there's some kind of openness or vulnerability right. to, to success, I thought, but actually that rejection aspect is, is really interesting. Well, and, and I think it plays into when, when you get to a certain level of success, the success becomes the focus, not the work that got you to the success, right? It, it, it has to, you have to maintain that level on, 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 in some way. And you're, you're focusing more on the reception than the doing. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's something there. It's just kind of, it's, you know, I've been writing down some notes on this scrap of paper. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> <laughs> Which you're going to stick to the underneath of your bed or something ridiculous after this, because why would it make sense where you put it? You know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. There, there is something about that. And, I, and I've, trying, I've been trying to figure out what it is that I'm afraid of in my own life about success and, and the, the fear of failure and the fear of success, I think go hand in hand often. And I think that part of it for me, it's not, I don't know that it's, that it's, you know, having some new circle of, you know, fancy pants friends. Cause I don't think that's the case. What I think it is the case for me is it changes my focus or it has the potential to change my focus from the process of making to the reception of making, to how it's received, to it, it takes, it takes the joy out of my hands and puts it in the hands of an audience. And that's what terrifies me. Yeah. It's interesting where you can be judged or yes. weighed. Yes. Or, you know, his first book was great, but his second book isn't that good. Or their first album was brilliant, but now the second, and then you, of course the temptation is to start tailoring your work to keep the criticisms away. Absolutely. He had something yeah. to say with this body of work, but eh, this one doesn't really resonate with me. Well, but when you're in the throes of, of making whatever body of work you're working on, I bet you money that you believe in it when you're working on it. That's why you're working on it. You see something. Every bad movie is staffed yeah. by people who believe that they're making a good movie. Nobody sets yes. out to make crap, do they? I don't think so. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I think that the, the other side of that is that, that 
maybe you're making something to say something, not for it to be as popular as it could be. Right. Like th- that's a different thing. So I, for me, some of my favorite films weren't widely viewed in cinemas, but I think they're brilliant pieces of filmmaking. Like I, I really enjoyed um, The Lighthouse. Oh, I loved a, it. A pre- yeah. A pretty obscure movie and pretty yeah. weird, but uh, Roger Eggers did exactly what he wanted to do with that film. Mm-hmm. There, w- there was no mistake in it. And the fact that it wasn't as popular as, as, as the Avengers movie that came out that year doesn't mean a thing. Right. And, and I'm glad there are still people out there who, you know, are able to make the stuff they believe in and care less about the box office and, and stand by it. Like, I, I, I think all of us need to take a lesson from that, but you're right. I, I, I bet you even he faces those temptations to make films that will be seen by much wider audiences that will give him bigger budgets and more clout in Hollywood that, that give him more prestige. But thank goodness there are those people with the integrity to go, no, 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 I, I really want to say this. And I know a lot of people won't get it, but I really want to say it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, we watched, uh, the, the tragedy of Macbeth Cohen's new movie, mm. Joel Cohen's new movie. And it's, wait to see it. it's brilliant. It is fantastic. Really? I mean, now think about it. You, you go to a studio and you go, okay, here it is. Here it is. I want to make Shakespeare. I want to do it in black and white. I want to do it pretty close to the original language. Mm-hmm. I want to do it in the Academy format, which is almost square. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I need $80 million to make it happen or whatever the budget was. I mean, that's yeah. that on paper, that sounds insane, but yeah. What a brilliant end product. And I don't think Joel Cohen, I don't know him, obviously, but this doesn't smack of, I really want to make a box office smash. This smacks of, I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare. I'm a huge fan of Denzel Washington. I'm a huge fan of Francis McDormand. I'm a huge fan of the material, the look, the feel, the, you know, and, oh, and by the way, we're going to design it as a stage play and we're going to extend out the environments digitally. Yeah, I did see the making of it. It looked amazing. It's incredible. It really is. I don't know, man. I, maybe you have to get beyond being afraid of getting kicked out of the tribe. But I do, in reading Pressfield's newsletter, I do, I do kind of get it. I get where he's coming from, and I kind of agree with it. Yeah, I think so much of it comes back to that fear of other people. Um. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment called uh, The Courage to be Disliked. Hmm. Uh, I forget the author's name. You look it up while I'm talking to you. Otherwise, that's not fair, is it? Uh, the Courage to be Disliked. Uh... Oh, I'm going to butcher this name. Man alive. Uh, it's a um, Japanese author by the name of um, Ichiro Kishimi. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and basically he he's... He's the the book is written as a um, a conversation between uh, a master and a student, basically. So a student comes and seeks out this master and asks him a bunch of que- bunch of questions about life, and uh, you know st- starts talking about his anxieties about life and challenging him. And he starts with um, um, Alderian psychology, saying that you know uh, Alder had this idea about. Um, that we 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 aren't formed as much by our past as we make decisions about going forward and what we want to make of our lives, uh, and then moves on to talk about well, I think a lot of your anxieties are connected to your fear of what other people think about you, and maybe that the way forward is actually to care less about the opinions of others. And the example I've just read about is how this guy decides he's going to go to university, but decides to take the subjects that his parents told him he should take because they think he should be this. And he resents them for it and he's mm. not good at it, but he has to do it because he has to please them. And why, but why do you need to please them? And is there really anybody on the planet that you need to please so badly that you're going to sell out what you need to be or who you really are? And, and, and the challenge ends up, and obviously you could be really arrogant with that, but, but there is a version of that. I think that's really important for all of us, especially to do with this. You, you have to have the courage to be disliked if you're going to make the things that you believe in and because the tribe might kick you out in, in social terms. They might decide, well, we don't want to look at what you do anymore because of the last thing that you did and we don't think it's what we want to see. They might do that. But if you don't have the courage to take that on board and go, well, I, I understand that you don't like this, but I still believe in it. I'm still standing by it. And I'm going to keep making stuff. If you want to check in on the next one, you can. If you don't, you're out. I respect that and goodbye, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah 
rather than bend to you. And and to be fair, there are a few people that, that we've heard about over the years in Hollywood, let's say, for example, George Clooney comes to mind, um, Heath Ledger before, obviously before he died, but a, a, quite a few people have had the same friends forever and ever and ever. And those friends, while they themselves may have, in, in terms of success, gotten away from the tribe, that tribe keeps them grounded. That tribe keeps them centered, I guess. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So I think in it, it, it keeps coming back to community, doesn't it? It keeps coming back to authentic community. And also building, building a select community around you, I think is really key. So yeah. you and I both have friends that it's a small group for each of us, I think, that we really, really trust what they say. Yes. And that I can bounce ideas off them. And I know they won't sugarcoat it. I know they'll tell me what they really think about it, which I need. I don't need someone to tell me everything I do is brilliant. I need you to be honest with me. And they also know that I might not listen to them and I might do it anyway because I don't think they've understood and I know better what I'm trying to do. But I'm also, I, I can trust what they say either way and I know they care about me first. And then what everyone outside of that says is just noise. I don't really care. Yeah. Because, because anything you put out into the world will generate a ton of noise on both sides. And, and there is a good argument to be made for the fact that generating a lot of noise on both ends and creating a polarized reaction is actually a good thing to be doing because it's generating good conversation. But if you then take all the negative side of that and let it bring you down, you've missed the point of putting work out into the world that challenges people. You have to have the courage to be disliked. Okay. How have you learned that? How have you learned to be so maybe judicious in what you do and don't let into that subconscious loop? Me specifically? Yeah, you specifically, because you, you, you get commentary on, on pretty dramatically on, on each side. You get people who really love what you're doing and who, occasionally, not a lot, I'm, I'm not trying to present that, but you get occasionally people that are very strongly the other way. Yeah. How do you choose what to let in and really affect you? I had good training with the church and yeah. they, didn't, they didn't give it to me. Like I, I, it was just the experience I had there trained me well, because when I worked for the church, there was so much about that institution I didn't buy, I didn't agree with and needed to speak out against if I had any integrity. Yeah. And that still was an institution that at the time I believed could change the world. So mm. the, the stakes couldn't have been higher. I'm one little guy in my 20s standing up and talking to an institution that's thousands of years old that I believe has the power to change the world, but I still think it's off track takes takes a lot of courage you know i look i look back at that 20 something as if he's not me it's it's a long time ago now but i'm really proud of him that he did that and the way that he did it wasn't perfect always but he he, he had his heart in the right place and i think when i when i look at that anything that comes afterwards because that's the other thing is everything that i said i got hammered in public but then I got pulled behind the scenes by people I really respected going, going, keep going, because, yeah, you're on the, someone needs to say this stuff. And I realized we're all lying to each other. We're all faking this. And, and the brave things to be said need to be said by somebody, and I'm, I'm happy to be that person. So then when I moved on to other things, I mean, the, the hilarious thing, because I, I wrote a book about leaving the church when I left the church, Um that uh, got passed around in South Africa quite a bit. And I remember then I went to work for a company as a photographer and I, I got into um, a bit of conflict with one of the directors there. And during this confrontation in a meeting, he stood up and went, well, what are you going to do now? You're going to, you're going to go write a book about us because you disagree with us. <laughs> Referencing this book. I'd, well, I'd, well, and I'm, I'm like, well, no, but what I, what I said to him was, is like at the, at the time, this was a company that sold, kitchen tools and i said to him you sell spatulas like i don't care about this enough like there's nothing here that matters to me as much as what i've just left and had the courage to stand up against this is nothing now i don't care if you want to fire me that's fine if you want me to carry on doing the job i'm doing for you here that's fine either way but i don't care about what you're doing like it could change the world so it, this doesn't emotionally affect me at all and I, I there was like a freedom in that so when i've moved on years and years now 
And way down the track, I now do things for myself. And I put things out that I want to say. I've, I've had both ends of this spectrum. You know, I've been in big institutions with huge power structures, with very, very intelligent people that I was very young speaking against and saying, look, I don't think this is right. And, and, and that is pretty much as bad as it could get. Right. Now, I get to say whatever I want to say about anything on my own terms, and people get to come to me and if they like it, they can stay. And if they don't, they can leave. It's a far easier situation to be in that I don't mind if you don't like what I do because I've been through way worse than this. Like, this is this is nothing. What, you don't like my last video? I promise you I'm not going to lose a second of sleep over that. It right. doesn't bother me at all because most people did. And even if they didn't, even if it split the room 50-50, I'm still okay with that because I was a 20-something standing up, speaking to rooms of 100 to 1,000 people saying, I think you're wrong. Like, this is, this is much easier, much easier. So it's, it's, all, it's all relative at that point. And I think that made me realize I would always rather be the kind of person who, whether I'm speaking about something deliberately or just making work that I believe in, I, I will lose sleep if I compromise on that stuff because I'm scared of the response I'll get from people. But I won't lose any sleep if I say what I really believe in but don't get the reaction I want. And I've learned that the hard way when I have compromised in the past or, or, or shut my mouth when I should have. When I sat in church meetings with people saying, yeah, but we can't let homosexuals in here because they're going to hell. And I didn't say anything. I couldn't sleep that night. But when I stood up and said, what the hell are you talking about? And then I got shouted down. I slept well that night. That that is far more important than you don't like the way that I spoke about manual mode on my camera. I really couldn't give a damn whether you think it could be done better another way. It's not even important. It's not even worth a conversation to me. So I don't care. And I think when you when you when you live through different things, I think you just it just gives it perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Be sure to check the show notes for links to some of the things that we've talked about in this episode. And you can subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app. Support the show by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen or share it on social media. Help support the costs of producing the shows directly by tapping the donate button at jeffreysidoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. And to those of you who have already contributed Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. You can connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. And if you haven't yet picked up a copy of his book, The Meaning in the Making, it's available on his website and at bookstores everywhere. You can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. As always, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. We appreciate it, and we hope you'll come back for the next one. 